in the course of a single day, how many decisions do you think the average person makes? In one day, how many different choices does an average person make? Well, a researcher from Columbia Business School found that the average person makes about 70 to 75 different choices each and every day, which means in the course of a week, that comes to about 500 decisions. Uh, In the course of a year, 27,000 different uh, decisions. And if you live to 80 years of age, that would be uh, 2,190,000, if I did my math correctly, decisions over the course of your life. Now, it may be a little bit uh, overwhelming thinking about all of those different decisions, but most of those decisions that we make actually don't have moral, much of moral implications to them. We wake up in the morning, we open the the sock drawer, and we choose a pair of socks. Not all that important, right? Actually, socks have become quite uh, popular, it seems like, today. Maybe that is important. What am I going to eat for lunch today? Uh, should I mow the lawn on, on Friday after work, or should I wait till Saturday to mow the lawn? But then there's decisions that have a moral nature to them. Uh, will, I, will I pick up the scriptures? Will I sit down and meditate upon the word of God? Will I engage my Lord in, in prayer and, and invest in fellowship and communion with him? Or will, will I allow another day or another week or even longer to pass in, in neglecting some of these practices and disciplines that God has prescribed for my own well-being and growth uh, in him? Will I ask for forgiveness from my child after having that outburst of, of anger, unrighteous anger toward them? Will I twist the truth in order to make the sale or to please the boss? Or will I uphold the honor of my Lord and my integrity and potentially risk losing uh, the sale? There's all kinds of choices that are moral in nature. And choices not only reveal the kind of people we are now, but the choices we make are revealing the kind of people we are becoming. And not only that, they're revealing the kind of place we desire to dwell, even for eternity in time to come. Well, here we are in Proverbs chapter 9. And we're not only presented with two significant choices, but we are given in chapter 9 the key in moving through this life of faith and this faith journey, being a person who is making decisions that is building a life of wisdom and godliness over the longer haul. So it's Proverbs 9, the whole chapter, it's 18 verses. Listen now to God's word. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Don't reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied, your years will be added to your life. If you're wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly, she is loud, she's seductive, she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, she takes a seat on the highest places of her town or of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are, who are going straight on their way, saying, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. We have seen through um, the book of Proverbs that the whole book is able in part to kind of give a powerful punch to the hearer or the reader, due in part to its structure, the way the book is put together. Chapter 9 is a prime example of this. This is the final chapter in the first section of the book, which consists of chapters 1 through 9, these longer poems in which we've seen appeal after appeal, ten of them, from the wise father and sage to the son, or sons, the children, calling for them to consider and, and, and walk the path of wisdom and godliness. If you look into chapter 10, you will notice that there begins the actual Proverbs, the short, pithy statements of wisdom. Chapters 1 through 9 are all there to prepare the reader to grasp and to receive those proverbial statements when they come. That's what chapters 1 through 9 are all about. So it makes sense that the final chapter in this opening section is an appeal to make a decision, a choice. What direction is your life headed? But the structural power is not just in the whole book. It's really right here in this chapter. You'll notice how many verses this chapter consists of. 18 verses. The first six verses, 1 through 6, and the last six verses, 13 through 18, mirror each other. They mirror each other. They both speak about a house. Each refers to a woman, either Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly. At each house is a feast that has been prepared. And in each there is this invitation to come and eat of the feast. So they mirror each other. The structure is clearly intended to communicate this either-or choice. House A or House B. Invitation A, invitation B. Feast A, feast B, etc. There's not many paths. There's not many houses. There's just two. Again, pointing us to the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of that sermon full of wisdom, the Sermon on the Mount, saying the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man, he built his house on the sand. But the greater power comes in how the structure points us to the middle of the passage, the center six verses. In Hebrew uh, literature, this is a chiasm, which simply means, among other things, it points the reader as they look at these verses to the center verses. In this case, the center six, and then even more, verses nine and ten, right at the heart of the passage. There in the center is disclosed the key 
characteristic that is going to move a person to choose the path of growing in godliness and wisdom and the goodness of God. Now, there's two important truths, I think, as we, as we consider these uh, various or two paths. Two important truths to know. One is every one of us here have histories. Not only our own particular histories, our own various experiences and backgrounds, whether you're 10 years old or 50 years old or 80 years old. But more importantly, we, not only as a church, but with the rest of humanity, share a common history, which is we were all born into sin. We were all born guilty before God, and we have a natural disposition towards sin. As David said in Psalm 51, I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. Or Paul in Romans chapter 5. The natural man is at enmity with God. He has a a hatred for God. That's his natural disposition. So that the world's relationship with the Lord is not one that is good. Romans 8 verse 8. Those in the flesh, the natural person, cannot please God. We call this, doctrinally, original sin. It is the corruption of our whole nature our mind, our desires, and our will. So contrary to popular belief, people are not blank slates from a biblical view. The answer for people is not simply feed them the right information, just simply educate them, and people will make that choice which is good and godly. Rather, we are born complicated and corrupted, and it goes beneath the level of mere choice. That's number one. Yet it is that messy, corrupted person and heart that God in Jesus Christ has set his love upon. So the second thing to note here in considering the choice of wisdom and folly is that God's not only redeemed a people, he's not only given his people a new nature, but now he relates to these people in a new way. That's what we've seen through the book of Proverbs, that word son occurs 22 times in the first eight chapters of the book. That word, son, tells us who we are in Jesus Christ. Sons, daughters of God. Which makes the wise choice of Proverbs 9 not just possible, but really something joyous. The scripture says in Hebrews 12, God is treating you as sons. Or Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. He stretched out his hand toward his disciples, said, here are my brothers, here's my sisters. So the loving father here in Proverbs 9, in discipling and in counseling his son or sons about these two paths, is clarifying the choices before them. And these two paths are not just representative of daily choices, they're representing the kind of people we are becoming and the kind of place we will dwell And so he gives that picture. You're walking down a road. On one side is a house. On the other side is a house. That's the picture. I think it's significant that they're houses, not just paths. Uh, Houses are places where we find a home. On one side is Lady Wisdom's house in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. 
Perhaps we've heard before, oftentimes the, that number seven can represent perfection. But perhaps even more here, the more pillars, the larger the house or structure. This is a grand house for many guests. Notice Lady Wisdom, what has she done? She has built her house, which shows her industry, it shows her skill. What about Lady Folly in verse 14? She's just sitting at the door of her house, revealing her laziness and ineptitude. And then what is Lady Wisdom doing in verse 2? She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. There's a strong emphasis upon the labor and the work that Lady Wisdom is doing in preparing something extravagant and good. She prepares meat and wine. This is a wholesome feast. Perhaps bringing us back to the great feasts of Israel, certainly of, of Passover and the celebration of God's redemption of his people. Uh, pointing us forward to this meal, uh, the Lord's Supper, in which we have life and sustenance. So this meal is no junk food. It is wholesome. Whereas Lady Folly's meal, what is it? It's just simply sweet. And it is stolen. Verse 14, it's eaten in secret because it's forbidden. Well, stolen water is sweet, at least for a while. But then it makes you sick. That's the nature of sin. One house contains a feast, meat and wine, the company of the godly, lady wisdom. It results in life. As she says, leave your simple ways and live. The other simply contains bread and water. The deception of the ungodly. And in that house are dried up bones. The dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of Sheol. But there's something crucial about this whole chapter and passage. Because the loving father is not just presenting two paths or houses. Uh, representing on the one hand life in the Lord. And our new position with God as those redeemed. And, and on the other hand those who are outside the Lord apart from his grace. Perhaps that is included in the picture, but in this chapter there's an emphasis upon how these paths and houses represent not only our position before God, but our formation as people. They, it represents the kinds of people we are growing into. There's an emphasis upon character development over the longer haul. And the place we see that is right toward the center, heart of the, of, the, of the chapter, in verse 9. Where it says, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. You see, there's a continued growth and increase in godliness in the life of the wise. That's still a part of their heart. They desire to continue growing. They, they're yielding to the instruction of those around them and the wisdom of those around them and the word of God. So the question then is not merely, do I believe in the Lord? Do I agree with these propositional truths? But more here, are the choices and the direction of my life one that is investing over the longer haul? 
pressing on, persevering in godliness and wisdom, continuing to grow, investing in the Lord's presence and word and kingdom. In this way, C.S. Lewis, I think, captures it very well in, in Mere Christianity. A fairly well-known quote from that work, where he says, Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And then taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. An emphasis upon the kind of people we are being formed into. Do we desire to increase in learning, to continue growing in godliness? When each new day comes rushing at you, filled with decisions to be made, uh, responsibilities to be carried out, what kind of person are we becoming? For example, when you feel overwhelmed with life's demands and responsibilities. Will time with the Lord in his word, in prayer, be pushed aside? Will he be taken a back seat? When your child disobeys again, will we respond with mere frustration or anger? Or with patience, loving, gracious correction? When my family members or my friends have begun to stray from the body of Christ, will I continue to value and see the worth of God's people? Because they are the ones with whom Jesus said, I belong. Innumerable are the decisions that give shape to who we are as the people of God. Now, I imagine all of us desire to grow in godliness and wisdom, in the knowledge of Christ well, in this chapter, there's a couple of tests that the father gives to his son to kind of check the pulse of our heart regarding this. It helps reveal the kind of character and person I may become. And this points us to those central six verses. So you've got... Verses 1 through 6 and 13 to 18, telling you the two courses, the two houses, the two paths. Now you've got a couple tests as you move toward the middle of the chapter to check. What person am I? What direction am I moving in from day to day, from week to week? The first test comes in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. This is the test of receiving correction. Reproof. The way of wisdom often involves correction because we possess many remnants of fleshliness and ignorance and unbelief for all of us. How do I receive correction? And instruction. When I sit under the word, when I hear another brother or sister 
share their perspective? Am I interested in learning? Or am I simply waiting till they're done so I can share my own opinion? Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. There's a humility of the wise that listens, that yields, that submits. They know others possess knowledge they don't have. They want to grow. So they're wise, they're humble, open to being corrected and reproved. They value growth and godliness, yielding to the lordship of, of, of the Lord. So that's test one. How do I receive correction? Test two comes in verse 12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. This is the test, as one person put it, of self-interest, or we could say personal or individual responsibility. Do I see the value and the worth of the life that God has given to me and therefore value the investment of growing in wisdom and godliness? To borrow the title of John Piper's book, Do Not Waste Your Life. It's worth the investment to pursue godliness. Now, you might be thinking at this point, I've got a whole lot of decisions to be made. Right? Two houses, two voices, two feasts, two invitations. Furthermore, pastor, you've given me tests now I've got to take. Okay, But the beauty of this passage is that it all boils down, the whole thing, to verse 10. It's, it's where the structure points us. It is the heart of the passage. It's the single most important building block to a life of wisdom. It is square one, the most fundamental principle that is going to determine the course of a person's life in growing in godliness or not. The fear of the Lord. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One in sight. Notice the parallel between the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Holy One. That there's a relational aspect uh, to this fear and to this knowledge. Well, who is the Lord? This is Yahweh, the one true God revealed in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. Yet what is it to fear the Lord? In the last chapter of John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, the late uh, professor at Westminster Seminary, he has a chapter on the fear of the Lord. I would commend it to you. He points out a couple of things. First of all, the fear of the Lord is not just an Old Testament concept. To fear God is riddled through the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or Acts chapter 9, So the church, walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Spirit was multiplied. And that fear of God has two essential meanings. One meaning is that it refers to that dread and terror that one would have before God. Because this is the one who holds life and death in his hands. He can remove me immediately from this place, from this planet. 
This is the one who holds in his hands forgiveness and eternal judgment. Who in the end will not only dwell with his redeemed people, but Revelation 21 will cast those who do not know him into the lake that burns with fire. But then there is that second meaning, not just terror and dread, but that fear which is a reverence, this awe before God, this humility before this glorious God, deference to God in which one draws near to him, knowing who he is, trusting in him as the source of truth and wisdom in life, and at the same time seeing in ourselves our own sin, our desperate, desperate need for him, that reverence for him. And it is deeply relational. And it's wisdom because we're recognizing and drawing near to the source, the fount of every blessing. The one who has within him all wisdom and all knowledge, all peace and life, that we would have this all before him. Would that principle be driving our hearts? That's what happens to the person who, through God and Jesus Christ, breaks into their hearts and causes this awe for his majesty and his glory, for who he is and what he has done. We're living at a time and in a world in which people have fear of many things, right? Fear of death. Fear of sickness, fear of other people. Might we be a people filled with that reverential fear, awe, wonder for who the Lord Jesus is? That brings us to a point where we continue to grow in godliness and wisdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that it is only by your grace and the powerful working of your spirit that you can ultimately produce that kind of awe. We were once a people, not your people, we were once a people in darkness, the eyes of our hearts closed to the truth of who you are and your gospel, but you have pierced our hearts and we pray, Lord, that you would grow us not only in wisdom, but grow us in standing upon that that fundamental principle and building block for a life of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, that we would be in awe of who you are, that we would have hearts full of thanksgiving for your goodness that you have demonstrated and poured out in your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life forevermore. We pray this in his name. Amen.